Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational program, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. There is yet another crisis in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia and its closest allies in the region moved against Qatar, cutting off sea and air travel and moving to isolate their fellow Sunni Gulf country. Like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, Qatar is a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, a regional group of erstwhile allies that coordinate security policies against Iran and other common threats. But tensions have been brewing for many years between Qatar and other countries on the Arabian Peninsula, and these tensions have apparently come to a head in the wake of Donald Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia late last month. Qatar is home to both Al Jazeera and the region's largest U.S. military airbase, which is currently the strategic nerve center of the U.S. air campaign against ISIS. That fact did not apparently stop President Trump from issuing statements on Twitter, of course, in support of Saudi allegations that Qatar is a nemesis that supports terrorist groups. On the line with me to unpack the situation and explain the roots of these regional rivalries, which has much to do with both Al Jazeera and Qatar's backing of different proxies during the aftermath of Egypt's Arab Spring, is Mark Lynch. Mark has been on the show before, most recently to discuss his newest book, The New Arab Wars, Uprisings and Anarchy in the Middle East, which you should all read. He's also a professor at George Washington University and someone I rely on to help me make sense of tangled Middle Eastern politics. You can and should follow him on Twitter at Abu Ardvark. If you have 20 minutes and want to learn why this spat between Qatar and its neighbors is so profoundly consequential to global politics, then have a listen. Now, here is Mark Lynch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates suddenly almost out of nowhere, launched this major escalation against Qatar. They basically began by uh, severing diplomatic relations, by banning Al Jazeera, and by really putting an exceptional amount of pressure on their GCC neighbor. And th this kind of came out of nowhere, even though there's a long history of competition between uh, between those three countries. And it's really thrown a lot of uh, a lot of the Middle East into a real turmoil right now. Uh, it comes on the heels of President Trump's trip to the Middle East, where he was trying to unify the ranks of the Sunni states uh, against Iran and against extremism. 
And it really now has created one of the most uh, one of the most significant crises in the Gulf Cooperation Council in uh, quite a few years. And, and it puts the United States in, in a somewhat awkward position because it has a major air base in Qatar, uh, but also, say, a major naval base in, in Bahrain and obviously very close military ties with Saudi Arabia as well and, and the UAE. Exactly. And the, the base in, uh, in Qatar is particularly important. Uh, it, it's kind of the crown jewel of the, uh, the regional military architecture for the United States. It's where they run basically the entire air war across the entire Middle East, um, which is, of course, the, the pivotal part of wars in Syria and Iraq against the Islamic State, uh, in Afghanistan, and basically the entire air campaign, which is the major way the U.S. rejects power in the region. And we've had that base since 2003. And from the Qatari point of view, this has been their security guarantee against Iran, but also against Saudi Arabia. It's what gives them the confidence that they don't face any external security threats, um, that, that having a, an American military base there protects them from those kinds of external pressures. And so What's been particularly uh, striking over the last day is that uh, President Trump's tweets, uh, which seem to uh, endorse the campaign against Qatar, have suddenly thrown all of this into question. Uh, you've got the State Department and the uh, and, and the Defense Department rushing to 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 ensure to say that uh, nothing has really changed. The air wars continue. Qatar is an ally. But, you know, if you're sitting there in Doha and the president is tweeting these things against you, it really does throw into question this basic uh, bargain, this basic security guarantee. And one of the, the accusations, I suppose, that Trump and also the Saudis have leveled against Qatar is that it funds or finances terror. From their perspective, what are they basing that on? Well, there's a, there's a couple of levels to this. Uh, so one of them is uh, that basically the Saudis and the Emiratis have an expansive definition of what counts as terror. And so there are areas where I think even the most sympathetic observers would agree that Qatar has had very um, questionable relationships. So for example, they have an ongoing relationship with Hamas, including hosting several of their key leaders. Um, and they're widely believed to have funneled a great deal of financial support to a very, very hardline uh, jihadist groups uh, and uh, fighting in the insurgency in Syria. And so and, and these are groups that many Americans uh, would consider to be uh, to be on the terrorist end of things. But it goes beyond that, because where. Americans might look at the Hamas and Syrian insurgency parts of it and say, yeah, that, that, that sounds like terrorism. What the Saudis and the Emiratis mean is that in addition to that, they also support the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood is an organization which has chapters all over the Middle East. Uh, most of them are nonviolent and they participate peacefully in democratic politics. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been campaigning since 2013 to have the Brotherhood labeled a terrorist organization. Um, most uh, United States at this point does not agree. Uh, the, nobody in the West agrees. 
And this has been a major point of contention. So when the Saudis and Emiratis are talking about uh, Qatar supporting terrorism, they don't just mean Hamas and uh, Syrian insurgents. They're also talking about the Muslim Brotherhood. And that becomes a big problem for the United States um, because it then touches upon our relations with uh, with allies and partners all over the Middle East. Presumably, you know, one could accuse like the Saudis and the Emiratis of, of also, you know, quote unquote, supporting terrorism for the kinds of, of uh, militant groups that they have supported in the past, both in, in Saudi in Syria and beyond. Well, there's different types of support. See, much of the, the commentary that you've seen thus far about the crisis talks about it in terms of uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis responding to Qatari mod, uh, meddling, right? The idea is that Qatar is out there meddling in regional affairs, supporting Islamist groups, promoting regime change, and that this is what forced the hand of the Saudis and the Emiratis. And this is just flat out wrong, because what's really been happening since 2011 is that the Saudis and the Emiratis have been meddling and interfering just as much as the Qataris have. They're just doing it on a different side. And actually, you know, as I talk about in my book, the uh, what's going on is very much a proxy war that's playing out across the entire region. And so it's true that Qatar provided support to Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and the Anahda movement in Tunisia. But Saudi Arabia and the UAE were also providing significant support to their proxies and building political parties, working with the old security establishments, and basically trying to mobilize their own networks uh, against the Qatari-backed Islamist networks. Places like Libya, uh, uh, the Qatar has been supporting uh, one of the uh, one of the factions in that civil war and has been supporting Islamist oriented uh, groups there. But the Emiratis, along with the uh, Egyptians, have been supporting the uh, the, the competing coalition, uh, uh, General uh, Khaled Hiftar's uh, Operation Dignity, and they channel weapons to them. They've been uh, providing airstrikes and air support to them. And so it's wrong to think about this as Qatar has been intervening and the Saudis and the Emiratis are pushing back. It's more accurate to say that both of these sides have been intervening all over the region uh, for quite some time. And this is more of an escalation of an ongoing competition than a Saudi Emirati response to some kind of Qatari aggression. So you pointed to 2011 as, as a key inflection point in this competition. And presumably that's the um, revolution and counter-revolution in, in Egypt when, as you just said, they, they backed different sides. The Qataris backed Morsi and uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, where the, the Saudis and the Emiratis backed uh, Sisi, who is now the president who deposed Morsi after his election. Um, is, is, was that kind of like the, the proximate cause of, of this kind of current rift? Yes and no. I mean, so the, the Saudis have been competing with Qatar uh, since the mid-1990s. And, uh, you know, the idea, uh, for which has governed a lot of inter-Arab politics for, you know, again, since like the mid-90s, has really been, you know, the, the Qataris and the Saudis leading these competing blocs. So like when Al Jazeera launched uh, the TV station, uh, this was partly 
uh, about like bringing voices of this new Arab public and promoting, uh, you know, freedom and all that. But it was also about needling the Saudis and covering political affairs in Saudi Arabia that the Saudi owned media had always covered up in the past. Um, the all through the 2000s, uh, Qatar was like trying to get in there and stick its nose into issues that the Saudis had traditionally been the only external mediator, like uh, the Palestinian issue and Lebanon and even Somalia. You know, so they, they were all over uh, that well before 2011. What changes with the Arab uprisings, though, is that the stakes go up enormously for everybody. You know, when, when, when these leaders uh, in, in the Gulf see people like Hosni Mubarak or uh, uh, Zian Abedin bin Ali in Tunisia being actually toppled from their thrones by these mass revolts, and they look out the window and they see tens of thousands of people taken to the streets in their own countries, they felt extraordinarily threatened. And I think that sense of threat and of vulnerability hangs over a lot of this. They wanted to get out there and make sure that they were not going to be toppled and that this was absolutely not going to be allowed to happen. And so and they all felt this. Um, and so at the very outset, back in uh, January, February 2011, they actually cooperated. Um, you know, so when uh, the Saudi forces intervened in Bahrain in March of 2011, the Qataris were right there alongside them. Um, but once that immediate sense of threat faded, then they diverged very quickly because then what they saw is all around the region, basically, they saw these open areas to compete with each other. You know, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Syria, Yemen, all of these states had basically collapsed. And so the, the, the still viable Gulf states, they just went in there and they, they, there was nothing to stop them from going in there and trying to put their own people in power to fight their, pro their proxy wars. And, and that's pretty much what happened. So 2011 was a real turning point, um, an inflection point, um, but uh, it built on this pre-existing rivalry. Well, and is it fair to say that um, Al Jazeera, which you know is based in, in Qatar, uh, it was sort of like cheered on the Arab Spring in a way that the other Gulf states found potentially threatening? And sort of what was the role or what is the role of Al Jazeera in this uh, dispute right now? Oh, absolutely. This was a huge part of it. Uh, Al Jazeera, um, after some initial hesitation, uh, it it embraced the Arab uprisings whole hog. It identified itself as essentially the mouthpiece, the spokesman of the revolutionaries. And it actually played a critical role in linking together all of these disparate uh, movements. And so, you know, back in those days, those of us who were following this, you know, we, we you, you would sit there and you would watch Al Jazeera Arabic and they would be showing on a split screen, um, you know, protests in Yemen and Tunisia and Egypt and Libya. And they would all be side by side and they were, you know, they were watching each other on TV. They were they were pushing all of this together. And, you know, what this does is from Al Jazeera's point of view is it makes Qatar quite central to all of this. Um, and it allows them a certain a degree of control over it. And it irritates the heck out of the Saudis and the Emiratis, who are basically counter-revolutionary forces. The last thing they wanted was to see these uprisings go anywhere. And so they were extremely annoyed with Qatar for, for cheerleading for these, for adopting this frame of democracy and, and progress. They wanted to see the protests put down. Um, but Al Jazeera's role actually changes over time and um, and pretty quickly 
Uh, it becomes more and more like a weapon for Qatar in support of their local proxies. And so it was like, for example, Al Jazeera used to be extremely popular in Egypt. And then as it came to be seen as uh, sympathetic with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, it got caught up in the partisan politics of Egypt. And so large numbers of Egyptians who opposed the Muslim Brotherhood then basically turn against Al Jazeera. And in Libya, they became very mobilizational on the side of their proxies. In Syria, they became an almost unwatchable mouthpiece uh, of, of the insurgency. And, and, and so it, it really has changed over time. But um, and, and, and I would say that right now, Al Jazeera looks a lot more like every other Arab TV station than it did back in those early days of 2011. But I think it, it, it is also relevant to look at just how important they were in kind of breaking that monopoly over, uh, over kind of Arab media coverage of the early uprisings. Uh, so what is Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis and others doing right now to isolate uh, Qatar? Well, they're, they're doing a couple of uh, things which I think are generally seen as violating kind of the rules of the game, uh, going past the red lines. Um, so they've imposed a complete uh, air and land blockade. Uh, Qatar is a peninsula. It's completely dependent on external supplies of food and water. And so that's actually quite dangerous. They blocked air traffic. Wait, all, wait, all air traffic right now? Like I once, I, you know, I flew Qatar Airways to Bangladesh once on a reporting trip and we stopped in Doha for a few hours, but that, that flight currently is not leaving or taking off. Well, it, it, can, it can still be done, but it's a lot more difficult now. Now you have to adopt a different route. You have to fly in over Iran hmm. rather than flying in over the, the conventional route. It's, it's very disruptive to Qatar, which has positioned Doha as something of a hub uh, in the global routes to Asia. Um, and so, you know, so the blocking of air travel is is a real problem, um, as is the, the land blockade uh, for the food and the water. They've also um, uh, withdrawn the licenses of Al Jazeera, and they're trying to block that. Um, and they're putting a great deal of diplomatic pressure on them, uh, trying to get them to expel Hamas and to, to do other things. Um, and the, the media has been going whole hog in this major concerted campaign uh, against Al Jazeera. Uh, today, it was reported that uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia have actually made it a crime punishable by up to 15 years in prison to express support for Qatar on social media. Huh. I mean, just imagine what that <laughs> – with the extent of what that could actually mean if it were actually enforced. So, so they're really serious about this. It sure seems like it. Now, the thing is that back in 2014, many of these same things were talked about, but they weren't actually done. There, were, there, was, there was the idea that you, you know, as with a lot of things with uh, Donald Trump, quite frankly, you know, it's the idea that there's just certain things you don't do. You know, you wage your battles within a set of established norms. And right now they seem to be just like shattering those norms. You know, they're, they're doing things which would have been unthinkable. They're even doing things like, uh, you know, hosting interviews on TV with dissident members of the royal family. Right. You know, in other words, you know, kind of pushing for regime change inside of Doha. Um, now, I think that right now people are kind of, you know, oscillating rapidly between two points of view. One is that this is going to end up being just like any of the other earlier rounds of this conflict. And after, you know, the, the pressure will go, Qatar will make a few concessions. They've already kicked Hamas out of the country. Maybe they do a few more things. And so, and things like that uh, could presumably then lead to a restoration of relations. Um, the Qataris would have survived. 
the uh, the Saudis would be able to claim that they had forced uh, Qatar to back down, and then things kind of go back to normal. But the other point of view is that the Saudis and the Emiratis have decided that this is their moment to go for broke, that they've gone so far forward that at this point they can't back down and they don't want to back down. That They think that they can really kind of conclusively change the situation. So, for example, the Emiratis might feel that they could convince Trump to move the airbase out of Qatar and into the UAE. Or they might be able to force Qatar to finally shut down Al Jazeera once and for all. Like something like that is kind of a maximalist demand, which they might feel that this is their one and only chance to achieve. And they might really go for it. And it seems that this crisis was just precipitated by Donald Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, presumably the Saudis got some sort of indication from him that this was a move that they could could make, perhaps unbeknownst to some of Trump's cabinet members like Mattis and, and McMaster, who are seemingly trying to do some damage control right now. It's really, really hard to know what, what goes down in one of those closed rooms. And, um, you know, it's just I don't feel that uh, President Trump has the sharpest grasp of the complexities of these issues. His tweets suggest that um, he has this very vague notion of radical Islamist terrorism. The Emiratis told him it was all Qatar's fault, and he said, great, go get Qatar. That would be an extraordinarily naive understanding of regional politics, Uh, not really something for a president to brag about, but um, that seems to be what happened. And if the U.S. moves its base from Qatar, then presumably that that security guarantee that they once had has now vanished. Yeah, that would be a huge outcome of this should it happen. But it's also, you know, very difficult uh, because, I mean, this is the nerve center of the war against the Islamic State, uprooting that base and moving it to another country in the middle of that war. And not even the middle, but right as we're approaching the climax of the uh, the assault on Mosul, the assault on Raqqa has just begun. I mean, this would it would be extraordinarily disruptive to try and move all that in the middle of this extraordinarily delicate time. And so, and the other part of it is that much more so than perhaps in the past, Qatar feels that it has options. Uh, one of the first things that happened after uh, after Trump's tweets about Qatar is uh, the uh, the Russian news agency put out a notice that uh, Putin had placed a call to um, uh, to the Emir of Qatar. And, uh, you know, again, who knows what was said in that call, but presumably the Russians would be very happy to have an American military base suddenly vacated in one of the most strategic uh, points in the Gulf. And there is some speculation that the Russians had some sort of Russian disinformation campaign had some role in this, although that's kind there was of a report yeah. on CNN to that effect. I mean, honestly, I don't think we really know yet mm-hmm. uh, who exactly is behind all of this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of information and disinformation out there about almost every aspect of this. And so yeah, I've seen the stories. I honestly don't know. Um, as to, to wrap up, is there anything you're looking out for in the next coming weeks to see or that will indicate to you kind of how this might shake out any any sort of moves that you might expect to see that could tell you one way or another, like how this will evolve? Well, I mean, again, you're looking at, at the uh, the mediation efforts by Kuwait and by Oman. You're looking at uh, signals of whether there's room for concession on one side or the other. But I mean, the real problem, the real issue here is that the, the Qatar-Saudi 
uh, and Emirati spat that's dominating the headlines right now is both extremely central to what happens in the Middle East and also something of a sideshow. In other words, that there's massive things happening right now in Iraq and in Syria that are going to decisively shape the future uh, shape of, of, of the Levant. Uh, you know, what happens in Mosul, what happens in Raqqa, these are enormously important. And uh, so in a sense, our attention is being diverted and the attention of, of the United States and of three critical allies is being diverted um, at a time when it is really quite urgently necessary. You add on to that the escalating confrontation with Iran happening at exactly the same time. We've just bombed uh, 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 Iranian-backed forces in Syria for the third time. Um, there's a lot of, there was a, just a terrorist attack inside of Iran today, uh, for which uh, some, many Iranians are blaming not ISIS, but Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of things going on right now. And in a sense, the uh, this Saudi Qatari uh, skirmish uh, might ultimately prove to be more of a distraction than the main event. Well, thank you so much, Mark. This was very helpful and clarifying. All right. Well, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Mark for speaking with me on such short notice. Uh, do check out my other conversations with Mark. He is one of my favorite go-to guys talking about uh, Middle East stuff. Thank you to Mark. Thank you all for listening. And feel free to send me an email. I posted a link to my contact page in the description field of the podcast where you can send me an email. I love hearing from you. And of course, become a premium subscriber if you're not already one. And I have a new bonus for premium subscribers. If you've listened to the past few episodes, you know that I have this Twitter list that I am giving out to you. All you have to do is email me. These are lists of about 10 or 15 people that I really enjoy following on Twitter that help me keep up with the news. Send me an email. I will send that to you for free. However, I have an even larger list of about 50 and counting other people that I also follow on Twitter. And that can be yours if you become a premium subscriber to the podcast. And you can become a premium subscriber to the show. Support the programming you love. You listen to every single week, twice a week by going to globaldispatchespodcast.com and clicking on the support the show link or following the links in the description field of this podcast. And you can be afforded other bonuses like, for example, a complimentary subscription to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service and also many bonus episodes that I've created for premium subscribers only. Thank you in advance for that. Oh, also I'm well aware that I pronounce Qatar with an American accent. Sorry about that. Unavoidable. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.